I intended to write in detail about the sentencing, the hearing at which Mr. Y is sentenced for the rape, and both Mr. Y and Miss X are sentenced for the conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. I intended to go into the postponement of the sentencing, the delays, the continuing pain and anguish that dealing with the criminal justice system causes to everyone involved, the extra information we found out in court of Mr. Y's bullying, coercion, threats and emotional blackmail of his girlfriend, Miss X, when he sent her to find B, how we discovered that, Even after she'd been warned by the police to stay away from what was a live investigation, Miss X set up fake Instagram accounts and tried to follow B's friend Sophia, with what aim we have no idea. Of how we heard Miss X and her mother screaming at each other in the ladies' loo during one of the many breaks in the proceedings. I was going to tell you all this, and so much more. But in the end, I realised I couldn't do it. I'm tired. Tired of the whole thing tired of the toll the aftermath of this horror is having, and will always have, on our daughters, my family. So I will just summarise. At some point, in court, I read the victim impact statements on behalf of B, and then we have to listen to Mr Y and Miss X's barristers vying with each other for who has the most saintly client. Mr Y apparently empties the bins in prison and volunteers for the Samaritans, and, back home in Austria, helped disabled people. I shouldn't wonder that he's never kicked a kitten, either. Miss X's mother has written a letter to the judge, apologising for her daughter's behaviour, and saying that she didn't bring her up to act this way. Yeah, right. Sarah, the prosecution barrister, believes the sentencing guidelines indicate a sentence between seven and nine years for the rape, and she is asking for eight years. She cites Mr Y's targeting of a vulnerable victim the CCTV which shows B and Sophia drunk and Mr Y chasing after B as soon as she is alone, the fact that B was attacked five minutes from her own home, the timing of the attack at night, and the steps Mr Y subsequently took to try to get B to withdraw her allegation. Mr Y's barrister then puts forward the many factors she believes should be taken into consideration in the judge's decision. She cites his previous good character, a fact that nobody can prove or disprove, given that he'd only been in the UK for ten weeks when he raped B. According to the barrister, the fact that Mr Y and B are not dissimilar in age should mitigate his sentence. I fail to see how or why that should make any difference whatsoever. She also cites the pre-sentence reports from the probation service, which say that Mr Y is immature, as if this excuses his actions. I find it disgusting that, even though he's been found guilty he still has a taxpayer-funded lawyer trying to get him the lightest sentence possible. Does this barrister want this man on the streets to do the same to her daughter, sister, niece, aunt, friend? Miss X's barrister gives as her defence that she was blinded by love and that she was therefore not responsible for her actions because she couldn't see past her great passion for Mr Y. This would be funny if it wasn't so horrific. There's a long argument about where the line should be drawn for an exclusion zone around our house that Mr Y and Miss X will not be allowed to enter for many years to come. The defence make it sound as if the prosecution is asking for an area the size of Australia rather than a tiny corner of a London borough. And then, in the midst of all this, we hear something that chills the blood in our veins. 
The plot to find B and bribe her to drop the case was not hatched just between Mr. Y and Miss X. There was a co-conspirator. We are stunned. During the trial, brief mention was made of persons unknown being involved in the conspiracy. At the time, I asked DC Megan Wade, who was in charge of the investigation, about this, and she brushed it off, making it seem as if it was nothing more than Mr. Y's cellmate egging him on or some such. Now we discover there was a whole lot more to it than that. From the downloads of Miss X's phone, it is established that Mr. Y has put her in contact with someone called Cellmate, and that she was in regular communication with this person. There are messages in which she asks Cellmate about finding our address, and inquires how much it would cost to settle the case. She warns him, Be careful, the phone is tapped by the police. Cellmate asks her to send a photo of B, so that he can make sure they get the right person. He messages Miss X and instructs, Do not contact that lady again. I will go to the house and speak face to face. It's unclear what lady he's talking about. Another message says, Mr. Y said please send the details so that we can start work. Yet another, that he's done this before and knows what to do, and that he can sort it out. After her abortive attempt to find B, Miss X sends cellmate another message. I don't have the confidence or guts to go to the house and speak to them. If you can help, we are willing to give them as much money as they want. Some of these messages have been deleted from her phone by Miss X, who is clearly unaware that the police can retrieve deleted messages. As you can imagine, we are gobsmacked by all of this. A random criminal somewhere, who Miss X has referred to as Clements or Clem, but whose real name this most definitely is not, has been given all our details and could, at any time, come to our house to find us. To find B. To find Iris. I am horrified. Immediately, my desire to move, to up sticks and leave London, resurfaces. I'm struggling to breathe, struggling to understand that my family has fallen foul of this additional level of criminality as if what has already happened to B and to Iris is not enough. Above all else, I cannot get my head around why the police did not tell us this, why we are hearing it for the first time now. There is a break in proceedings when the judge has to take a verdict on another case. We go into one of the waiting areas with Megan the DC and the prosecution barrister Sarah. On the wall above the fixed-to-the-floor seating are round, greasy splodges where many heads have rested, this disgusts me, but not as much as the police's negligence. I'm livid, I say to Megan. Caroline nods in agreement. Who is this guy, I ask? What has happened to him? Why is he not in court, also charged with conspiracy to pervert the course of justice? We don't know who he is, replies Megan. I don't understand, I say. He met Mr. Y in prison. Someone must know who he is. The prison governor has told us that Mr. Y had 14 cellmates during his time on remand, and they don't know which one is involved in this. We've tried to establish who it was, and we haven't been able to. I'm momentarily silenced. Mr. Y had been in prison for six weeks when Miss X came to visit. Are we really to believe that he had 14 cellmates in six weeks? Or is this the prison governor obfuscating again? refusing to allow the police to access records and information essential to the case, exactly as he did with the phone call transcripts. 
How on earth does a prison governor get to dictate what he will and will not do for the police? You should have told us, I tell Megan. Why didn't you tell us? I took advice from senior colleagues, explains Megan, and was told you didn't need to know as there was no threat to you. No threat to us, I repeat slowly. No threat to us from a criminal who is on record saying he can sort the problem out. A criminal who knows our address. But you don't know his address or even his real name. You don't know anything about him. So how on earth are you able to establish that he doesn't pose a threat to us? Megan's eyes flick to and fro. She looks very uncomfortable and she doesn't answer. Do you have that advice and decision in writing? asks Caroline. Megan pauses. I think it might have been a verbal conversation, she replies. Hmm. Caroline is not impressed and she doesn't hide it. When Megan and Sarah go off to sort something, Caroline says to me, Lisa, now's the time. You need to put that complaint in now. Everything from the mail sew it, the dud interview he conducted, the refusal to initially look into Miss X's visit, the non-disclosure of information, the mistakes over whether information was or was not correctly redacted, the stonewalling and the patronising, etc., etc. And now this. I nod. I want to complain. I need to complain. The thought of the time and effort complaining is going to take fills my heart with dread. I find out soon enough that this fear is not misplaced. In the end, I do complain. To cut a very long story short, it takes over six months to get the complaint registered due to the Metropolitan Police Force constantly pushing back, obfuscating and delaying at every turn. There is one thing that the Met does not want under any circumstances and that is to be held to account for their actions or inaction. They do absolutely everything they can to avoid being scrutinised, and they almost never uphold any kind of complaint whatsoever, no matter the severity. I doggedly pursue the matter for months and months. When I finally get to the stage where they have no option but to open an investigation, I find out that a PC, the most junior rank in the force, is in charge. This is like a school dinner lady being given the task of investigating the head teacher. It is no surprise that, eventually, the Met concludes that it has no case to answer. Everything the Force did was perfect. There is nothing to learn, nothing to rethink, nothing they would do differently. The sheer arrogance is breathtaking. But I digress. Back at the sentencing hearing, we've run out of time, so the session will have to reconvene later in the week. When that day finally comes, the judge goes through the evidence once more and gives her reasons for the sentences she has decided upon. I should note here that she talks about Mr. Wise's continued lack of remorse, his continued denial of any wrongdoing, as forming part of her decision. I'll summarise the sentences the judge hands down. For the rape, Mr. Wise given seven years and nine months. We consider this lenient. For the conspiracy, he is given 22 months, which is reduced by 25% because of the guilty plea, so ends up as 15 months. These two sentences will be consecutive, so the total sentence is nine years. He will spend this in a young offenders institution and will be eligible for conditional release two-thirds of the way through, i.e. after six years. He will be on the sex offenders register for the rest of his miserable life. The judge doesn't say miserable, obviously. That's my embellishment. For her part in the conspiracy, Miss X is given 12 months, reduced to nine months due to her guilty plea. 
Her 41 days already spent on remand and her 93 days on curfew are taken off her sentence. But because she continued to approach Sophia and cellmate, even after being told to stay away from everything and everyone to do with the crime, the judge declares that Miss X must go back into custody. And then it's all over. Mr. Y and Miss X are taken away by the prison guards and we walk out of the court building for the last time. It's a hot, dusty summer's day, the roses in the courthouse garden blooming profusely, the litter that's blown in from the road twined around their stems and caught by the thorns. There's a metaphor there somewhere, of how we've all been trapped by this awful event, my daughter's young lives forever blighted by what this man and this woman have done to them. I have no space in my heart for forgiveness. I hope they have a terrible time in prison. Most of all, I hope they learn their lesson. A few days after the sentencing, 35-year-old law graduate Zara Alina is sexually assaulted and murdered in East London whilst walking home from a night out with friends. Later, it will emerge that her attacker, Jordan McSweeney, was caught on CCTV following several other women before picking on Ms. Alina. Just as we have always known, this kind of man preys on the vulnerable, can spot who will not be able to defend themselves. And as always, a man has the advantage of strength and surprise. The terrible irony is that if McSweeney had raped Ms. Alina and not killed her, he would have been in court claiming their encounter was consensual, and he would probably have got away with it. <laughs> 